Right on. Let's pray. Let's go to God's word. Lord, we just thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that it is um, from you inspired, Lord. And we recognize the word of God is the authority in our lives and the authority in the church, which directs us towards our Savior, Jesus. And Lord, this morning, we want to submit to what your spirit says to us through the word of God. We want to hear, Lord. We don't come to the word of God as critics or as authorities over the word. It's, it's come to speak to us, to transform our hearts, to change us, to bring forth the work of the kingdom in us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit this morning. We just pray, God, that the Spirit would bring uh, the word to life in our hearts and that you would be glorified, Jesus, that your name would be clearly preached and taught in your name. Amen. Sweet. Okay, so we've been in our series, 1 Samuel, and uh, come to chapter 16 here. We're going to have a nice shift in the book of Samuel, uh, as we get introduced to David, and let me just remind you that it was back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that the people came to the prophet Samuel, and they uh, asked for a king like the other nations, and until that time, God had ruled over them. He had ruled over them through uh, God-ordained judges who were anointed by the Spirit, leaders who God raised up in times of need when the nation was in crisis. And they would uh, lead the people of God towards deliverance. But in the midst of everything that was going on around them and looking at the other nations around them, the people of Israel said, we want to have a king like those around us. And, and in that request, what they were doing was this, is they were rejecting the kingship of God. They were rejecting the rule of God. They were rejecting their identity as a holy people. As a holy nation, we, we talked about this a number of weeks back as they were rejecting their identity as a peculiar people. They were called to be different, called to be holy, called to be set apart unto the Lord in the midst of the nations of the earth and to reflect the character and nature of God to the world. And so they rejected this holy calling and they said, we want to be like other nations. We want a king like other nations to rule over us. And so the people asked for a king, and what they got was Saul. And so the last number of weeks, we've been looking, chapters 13 through 15, at the life of Saul. We're in chapter 16 this morning. And as we've uh, seen in recent weeks, the people got the king they asked for rather than the king that they needed. And as we've seen through our recent studies, Saul was, uh, I don't know, a piece of work. Uh, he was interested in his own glory rather than leading the nation towards obedience and pointing people to the glory of the Lord. And, and we saw in chapter 15 that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul uh, king over Israel. But now this story, 1 Samuel, they're seeking for the king. It, it takes a new turn, a new beginning. A new king is going to be anointed, one we love, David, okay? So let's check it out, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So we know this, Samuel had anointed Saul as king, and things did not play out how Samuel had hoped, how he had envisioned, and he was clearly disappointed about how things had gone. But the Lord said to him, Fill your horn with oil and go. You're going to anoint this new king. Now, I was just thinking about, you know, Samuel and the sense of disappointment that had settled into his own heart, his grief about 
Saul. And you know, sometimes serving God in life and in ministry, it can be painful. Have you figured that out yet? There, there, it, can, it can be, you know, you can end up in spots and doing things that you didn't expect or, or you know, stuck somewhere or disappointed by how things have turned out. But there comes a time when mourning and grieving has to end and the time comes to get going. And that's what the Lord says to Samuel. It's time to begin again, Samuel. And the Lord says, I've provided for myself a king amongst the sons of Jesse. Now, to me, that has an unmistakably different tone than all of the discussion about Saul. The Lord says, I've provided for myself a king. Saul was the people's choice, but now the Lord will make his own choice. Now, verse 2, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and they said, and they said, do you come peaceably? Now, Samuel's got questions about this for the Lord. You know, the Lord's sending him to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. And naturally, uh, he says, hey, but I'm going to put my life in danger by doing that. You know, when there's a king in power, obviously, he's going to take whatever measures are necessary to protect his authority and his rule. And anyone who challenges that is going to put their, their lives in danger and, and may lose it. And things between Saul and Samuel, like if we just consider where the story is in this book, it hasn't exactly been peaceful most recently. It's not, a, you know, it doesn't exactly end on a super friendly note at the end of chapter 15. And if Samuel anoints a new king, lives are going to be in danger. His own, the man that he anoints, maybe the, the different families. And so he says, Lord, how can I go? I'm putting my life in jeopardy to do what you're asking me to do. And what I find is interesting as you read this, that in response, the Lord doesn't even address Samuel's fears or concerns. He says this, I told you to go, go, you know, get a heifer and go to Bethlehem and make a sacrifice and anoint the son of Jesse, anoint the one whom I declare to you. And Samuel was obedient. Now, when you read this, I don't know about you, but lots of times over the years as I read this, I thought, well, isn't this kind of like dishonest? Is this kind of like a bit of a game they're playing here? Like what's going on? Is it false pretense in terms of going to Bethlehem? Some suggest that, that there was a, a level of dishonesty in this instruction from the Lord. But you know, the more I thought about this and just meditated on this this week, I got to say to you that I don't think that there could be anything further from the truth. That that is wrong. <laughs> that even if your heart says there's something dishonest about this, I want to tell you there isn't. I would say there is nothing further from the truth. See, this is a contrast between an obedient prophet and a disobedient king, an obedient Samuel and a disobedient Saul. Samuel had reason to fear, but the Lord doesn't even address it. He says, I told you to go, go. So off he went and he arrives in Bethlehem and the elders of the city come out trembling to meet him. Tensions, I don't know, they're high. The last time, actually the last time anybody had heard anything from Samuel was when he took a sword and hacked an Amalekite king, Agag, to pieces. So, you know, Samuel's arrival in Bethlehem has everybody shaking in their boots. 
or sandals. They're shaking in their sandals. And this is quite the picture of Samuel's commanding presence. He could have taken this community by himself with a word. But he comes peacefully and he calls the community together to be consecrated unto the Lord, to be set apart, to have a time of, of just getting things right with the Lord and to gather for this sacrifice. Now, verse 5, he says this, and he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Jesse's family gathers, all these sons, seven sons, and they come to this feast. Samuel consecrates them for the feast, and he assumes that the whole family is there when the seven sons of Jesse are there. And Samuel is really, he's doing this, he's operating by his sight rather than faith at this point, and naturally, he looks on the firstborn of Jesse, and he says, wow, this is the man. This is the king. Uh, I, I think I found the one the Lord is looking for. He's tall. He's strong. He's good-looking. Everything you would want and hope for in a king, this is what Eliab is. And it's amazing to me that Samuel has already forgotten the mistake of Saul. Can you hear that as, you, as we read this? He's already forgotten what has happened in the case of Saul, who himself was the total package, Saul. So Samuel thought he had his man in Eliab, but verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man, don't you love this verse? This is a great verse, man. If it's not underlined in your Bible, you should underline it. I love this about the Lord. You know, in life, human beings, what do we do? We look on people and we judge them on the basis of the things that we see. You say, well, I look at how they look or how they behave, or how they dress, or how they talk. But the Lord was not impressed with Eliab. No matter his appearance, his height, his physique, these were not relevant qualities to the Lord. And I'm thankful for that, you know, that the Lord doesn't look down from heaven and get impressed with your physique. I just want to clarify that for you. He's not looking down from heaven and going, wow, that guy's got great shoes. He's not looking down from heaven, noticing your new haircut or your nicely groomed beard. Actually, you know, I take that back. I think the Lord thinks beards are really cool. <laughs> no, look at the standards of God are very different from the standards uh, of this world and what the world values because the Lord tells Samuel here, I look at the heart. I look at the heart. So, you know, in a sense, I want to just say to you, take a deep breath this morning. This is good news. If we're to take a poll of this room and say, hey, do you feel like you are meeting the standards of this world in terms of your physique and your looks and your this or your that, I, I would bet this, that there's not one of us in this room who would say, yeah, I'm there, I've arrived. You know, I can admit, having the perfect body got away from me, okay? 
perfect spouse, I did pretty awesome, but Lisa, not so much. Standards of this world, I think perfect family, well, I think, well, we've got a good family, but it's not perfect. It's not without conflict. It's not stress-free. Education, mm, nothing to write home about. Lots of money, nope. So, you know, it's really refreshing to know that God is not particularly enamored with these things, the things the world values. He looks at the heart, and that's good news. I mean, it's good news, but then when I start to think about that and ponder that, I recognize that that also is problematic for me, that God is looking at my heart, that he looks at your heart. I mean, who has the kind of heart that God wants? I have to say there's stuff in my heart, and I know it's in your heart as well, so I can confess this, that I, that I don't want anyone to know. So there is like, this is just like problematic all the way around in a sense. I mean, it sounds really relieving in a minute that God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart, but then you look into your own heart. And you, you go, okay, yeah, the outward stuff, it's not exactly top shelf. But if I'm honest with myself, my heart is worse. My heart is actually worse. And the problem is, is that often we are more concerned with impressing others with the outward stuff than pleasing God with the inner stuff, the heart stuff. The Lord sees the heart. And what's amazing is, is even Samuel struggled to grasp this. Saul was so impressive that everyone was blinded that there were major heart issues with Saul because he was the total package on the outside. He was what the people chose. And even Samuel is blinded when he sees Eliab. And this is a lesson that we have to learn over and over and over again in life. That God's not looking at the outside. He's looking at the heart. And this is what the gospel teaches us. This is the message of the gospel, and it declares, the word of God declares to us the condition of the human heart apart from God. That sin has so marred our heart that we actually need a full heart transplant from the Lord. We need God to give us a new heart. That's why we need God's chosen king. We need Jesus to be the one who rules over our heart and over our lives because the rule of Christ results in a change of heart. When Jesus is your king, Jesus begins to put the desires of his kingdom into your heart. He, he renews your heart. He gives you a new heart. I mean, think about it. Before Jesus, were you ever concerned about the kingdom of God? No. You lived to please your Saul. You lived for the king of the flesh. The flesh was king and the appetites of the body Ruled, but when Christ was given lordship, when Jesus was given kingship over your heart, your heart was transformed. It was changed. You became a new creation in Christ Jesus. Not perfect, but now the things of the kingdom and the priorities of the kingdom and the glory of God and the things that please him became the desires of your heart. And even Samuel struggled to grasp this. So, so look at, count yourself in good company. We all need to be reminded of this truth from God's word. That man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And that means this, that when he looks on the heart, he is looking for a heart of uh, humility, 
a heart of lowliness. Humility of heart is to have a right view of itself. To say, I understand who I am before God, that before God, I'm corrupted by sin and lost in my sin, and I am dependent upon the Lord to give me a new heart and to save me. Humility of heart is to have a right view of self and a right view of the Lord. You know, it's been bugging me for a couple weeks, and so I'll just say it publicly. Uh, right out on the street corner out here on the bottom of School Road, if you're coming down the hill, it's on the right-hand side. Somebody's taken chalk, and they've written stuff on the... And it hasn't washed away because it hasn't rained. Has anybody seen it out there? And it totally bugs me. Like, it totally irritates me. I'm like, I have to go change those words. Because you know what it's, it says? It says something along the lines of, you know, it's meant to be an encouragement. Now, I don't want to not say that. It's meant to be an encouragement. But it says, you're enough. You are enough. You need to know that you're enough. And it just goes on with this statement. But I want to say this, according to God's word, that's actually not true. You're not enough. You're not enough. You're enough. That's the gospel of this world. But, but the truth is, God's word says that that is not true. I am not enough. I'm not enough. But Jesus Christ is enough. But Jesus Christ is enough, and I need Jesus, and you need Jesus. We're not enough. We are not sufficient for our salvation. We cannot manufacture the peace of God in this heart. It has to come from an outward source. Jesus Christ is enough, and Jesus produces peace with God and brings the peace of God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And a heart of humility, when the Lord looks on a heart, a heart of humility says this before the Lord, Lord, I'm not enough. So I look to you. Because I know you're enough. Because I know, Lord, that your grace is sufficient in my weakness. Christ is enough. And because Christ is sufficient, when we humble ourselves before God, in the person of his son, Jesus, we receive peace with God and the peace of God. Samuel, the Lord says, man looks on the outside. God looks at the heart. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel when he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of the sons of Samuel, uh, sorry, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So seven of the sons of Jesse passed before Samuel, and the Lord rejects every single one of them, one through seven. And then Samuel says, something's not right here. Is there anybody else like... Is there another family member that might not be here? And, and Jesse says, yeah, there's the youngest. He's with the flock. He's with my flock and with the sheep, which I would say is a good place to find the shepherd, the man who's going to be the shepherd of the nation. He's already with the sheep. The eighth son, you know, um, in the Bible, eight is a number of new beginnings. God is going to do something new here. 
And Jesse says the youngest. Now, the youngest in Hebrew, it, it means more than just that David was the youngest. It infers that David was so small in his father's estimation that it was considered not necessary to include him in what was happening with their family. It's like not necessary to include him with the family when they gathered before the prophet of God who had called them together. Well, this is the youngest. He's out in the field with the sheep. Now, like as Christians... New Testament believers, I mean, we have this like really romantic idea of a shepherd, don't we? I, every time I think about this, I'm reminded of our first trip we did to Israel and, and our guide, Ronnie, and I asked him about shepherds and he said, Jesus, we don't look after sheep. He was like totally offended that I thought being a shepherd was a cool thing. He's like, what are you talking about? Like we have this romantic idea, but keeping the sheep was not a coveted position in Israel. Let me remind you of the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob had a favorite son amongst the 12. His name was Joseph. You know that. And was Joseph looking after the sheep? No, he was not. Not Joseph, which was a number of one of the reasons why his brothers hated him. Jacob considered Joseph to be above keeping the sheep. That was beneath his favorite son. This is the gig you pawn off to the youngest. This is the gig you pawn off to the one who is the unnecessary brother. And I want to tell you that when we look at David here, we have to recognize this about him, that there is nothing fantastic about David. He's very, very ordinary in his father's eyes. And this is our introduction to him. He's looking after the sheep. But there's something hopeful in this because it's different from the introduction to Saul, remember Saul, how he was introduced to us? What was he looking for? He's looking for his father's donkeys. He's wandering around lost. David's being responsible, looking after the father's sheep. Now verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Ruddy means this, that he was fair-skinned. He might have been a ginger or redhead. That's actually what that's communicating. It's a similar description to Esau. Ruddy means he's red. He's fair-skinned. His beautiful eyes. Which I, I like that description. Like the eyes, we say this, the eyes are a window to the soul. The, the eyes give you a picture of the heart. And, and the word of God says if your eyes are full of light. Your whole body will be full of light. David's eyes were beautiful. Remember David wrote in the Psalms that in his house, he would not put a wicked thing before his eyes. And the word of God, the, you know, the description of his eyes, it's a, it's a window into his heart. The Lord's looking for a man after his own heart. He was handsome. It's not like Eliab handsome, not like that. Not like his oldest brother, but he's still a good-looking young man. Actually, probably, probably a young teenager. And this is the Lord's choice. You know, it's telling us, he's handsome. It's not like, you know, ugly people get one up in the kingdom, okay? It doesn't say he looked like the back end of a mule. It's like he's still a good-looking young guy, even though he's not Eliab, okay? But God doesn't look at the outside. But the outside does, dis, does not discount us from the sovereign choice of the Lord. So, you know, if you're good looking, don't be discouraged. There's hope for you. 
You can still be saved. <laughs> okay, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Wow, what a description. The Spirit of God rushed upon him when he was anointed. Now, again, you know, I, I think that this is important about David. There's a lot of ways in which David was very ordinary. I mean, we love David. David is one of the biggest heroes that we have in the Word of God. But, you know, David was ordinary. And I say that to encourage you. His life, his life wasn't ordinary, but he, the man, he was ordinary. Life not ordinary. Like he slayed giants and all the different things that he did. But what he did was not because of the inherent greatness in him. Everything he did was because the Spirit of God had rushed upon his life. He was a man anointed by the Holy Spirit. God was at work in him and through him. And we look at David and we look at his life. I mean, those of you who know his life story and we, everything we think about him, it, it, it makes him so great in our minds, but we need to know this. The greatness was from the Spirit of God. He was ordinary. But he had access to the extraordinary power of God through the Holy Spirit. And he had access to the power of the Spirit because the Spirit had rushed upon him and filled him and because he lived a life that was focused on God rather than on himself. And I'm thankful that the Word of God tells us the same Spirit lives in us and empowers us. Amen. You know, when God rejected Saul, the Lord said through the prophet Samuel that God would anoint a king of his own choosing and he would anoint a king who had a heart after God. And the difference between Saul and David was this, that the Lord set his heart upon David. We talked about this a number of weeks ago. David was ordinary. But God set his heart upon David. And everything he's going to accomplish is by the Spirit of God. David spent his life focusing on what God had done for him. This is the key to the life of David. He lived in humility before the Lord because he knew the Lord had chosen him from his father's sheepfold. He knew it was all the Lord. He could genuinely say this, and he did say it, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Who am I, Lord, that you would do this for me? Saul, on the other hand, Saul was convinced of himself. Saul was convinced of his greatness. That is vanity. Look at if I could tell you one thing about David this morning, I would tell you this. David did not achieve greatness because he nurtured narcissism. That would be vanity like Saul. You know what vanity is or narcissism is? It's that excessive interest or admiration of yourself and your physical appearance and who you are and what you've done. And I have to say, like, I really think this, that a lot of the North American church preaches a message that is very narcissistic in its focus. A gospel that is all about me. Let me remind you this morning, church, the gospel is not about you. The gospel is all about King Jesus. 
The gospel is all about the glory of God. And you know, with great confidence, I can tell you the Lord, before the Lord that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. But I will tell you this, the universe does not revolve around you. That is a false gospel. You're enough, you're this, you're that, your self-esteem, your ego. Look at Jesus did not go to the cross for your ego and to boost your self-esteem. Jesus died on the cross to save you from yourself so that you would live for him rather than living for yourself. Jesus died so that rather than living for yourself, you would live for him. And to me, this is the strength of the man David. David loved what God did for him. That's why he's the writer of the Psalms. He said, Lord, who am I that you would do this for me? He knew he was ordinary. Makes me think of Moses. The word of God tells us that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Makes me think of the words of James regarding Elijah. He said this, Elijah was a man with a nature like us. Nothing inherently great about Elijah. It was the God that he served. Abraham, he believed God and it was counted as righteousness. These men that we make into heroes, they were ordinary men serving an extraordinary God. Amen? David made much of God. David made much of God. That is what faith is supposed to do. Our entire faith, our entire church, Christianity, it exists to make much of Jesus. We exalt King Jesus. David made much of the Lord. And we exist to make much of Jesus because Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus died to save you. Jesus is coming for his church. Jesus will judge the earth. Salvation is in the name of Jesus alone. David was ordinary. We're ordinary. I guess in a sense, a bunch of nobodies worshiping somebody who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And so let me remind you from this text, it's important. We don't want to be like Saul. We don't want to try to be Saul. I guess in this sense, we want to be like David. David was filled with the spirit of the Lord. And the word of God says this, that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And, and I, to me, this is just so countercultural because the world is always dishing out or ready to serve you up praise to tell you, to tell people how awesome they are. You're enough, like it says out on the sidewalk. And look, I got to tell you, you are special. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made in the image of God and God loves you. But let's make one thing clear. You need the Lord. (laughs) We need Jesus. And Jesus loves you in spite of the fact that you may not even recognize your need for him. But we're desperate for him. Because without Jesus, this heart of ours, it's just so corrupted. Look, David, David was a man who knew that he needed a shepherd. David knew that he was like a sheep who needed a shepherd. He wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He 
leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in path of righteousness for his name's sake. I won't fear because his rod and staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He said to the Lord, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. He could say this, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He knew it was all the Lord. All the Lord. This is a right heart before God, church. And so Samuel anointed David. And what's shocking when you read this, I mean, we don't get all the backstory, but amazingly, somehow, for some period of time, I don't know how long, David goes back to his father's field to tend the sheep. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, anointed to be king, destined to be king, but God sends him back to the pasture to prepare him. You know, you and I, we have a destiny. We're sons and daughters of God. But God uses the pasture to prepare us. And so I want to remind you from the word of God, as the prophet said, don't despise the day of small things. Be faithful in the little things. Because God is at work in the little things. When no one else is looking and no one else is watching, God is at work. Don't despise the pasture. Don't despise your current suffering. God, God is using it to prepare you for the next thing. God uses everything for the next thing. So we want our hearts in the right spot. Now look, you know, you're not David, okay? You know, this story, in a sense, is not about you. We see bits of ourselves in, in these stories, but we're not the stars of the Bible. The Bible's all about Jesus. It's all pointing us to Christ. This story is preparing us to be looking for someone greater, preparing us for a king who is going to come, preparing us for Christ. And God uses everything for the next thing. And so what's crazy here is we're going to read in a second, in contrast to David, look what happens to Saul, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord, this is tragic, departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So the spirit of God departs from Saul and God allows a spirit, an evil spirit, to torment him. And, and Saul, from here on in, Saul just becomes increasingly a man who can be agitated, who's volatile. Verse 15. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. But let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And this just tells us music and praise is so powerful, isn't it? It's why, you know, I said in our church all along, I said, we are not negotiating on singing. <laughs> it's not an option. I mean, I like just grew in my conviction about the reality of the church and the need to sing. It's totally unique to Christianity. That when the people of God gather, they raise their voice in song to declare praises to God. 
Because music is very powerful. In the book of Ephesians, the first sign of a spirit-filled person is this. They will sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Music is powerful. Praise is powerful. We all get in those places where we deal with discouragement and depression and anxiety. And look at this is a good reminder. This, is, this helps us here to see the value of praise and worship, to say, worship is good medicine for your soul. You know, when you're, you, that's why, you know, when I'm home by myself, rise my day off, the stereo rocks in my house all day long. <laughs> and I, because I, I, you know what, I have to tell you, probably my biggest day of struggle is my day off in terms of just depression and, and, and discouragement. And I'm like, I have to have, be in an atmosphere of praise. The worship music gets turned up. My kids they drive them crazy. But praise and worship gets your eyes focused in the right direction. Praise and worship turns your heart towards the Lord. When life gets you down, praise and worship gets you focusing back on the one who holds your life in his hands. Now imagine this, the, by the providence of God, David is the one who is going to be recruited from the shepherd's field to Saul's house to sing music to soothe Saul's tormented spirit. This is amazing. Verse 18, one of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Now, again, David was ordinary, but the spirit of God that is at work in him is extraordinary. David's skillful in playing. He's a musician. And we're given here like five characteristics of David. Actually, it was making me think of the five smooth stones that he pulled out of the stream. We're going to look at the story of Goliath next week. Five in the Bible is a number of grace. He's called a man of valor a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the key, the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. Verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and he sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well. And the harmful spirit departed from him. Uh, this relationship starts off really well. Saul loves David like a son, becomes his armor bearer. Isn't this amazing? This is the providence of God. I like how the guys leave out, yeah, and he's anointed to take your place as king. They left that out. They left that out. You know, this morning as we uh, look at this, we're going to watch this relationship devolve. We know that. But God was preparing David David had been anointed. And you know, it's, it's amazing to me, I guess maybe if there's somebody in the story whose shoes we could step into for a moment this morning, it might be Samuel. 
And Samuel had to anoint a king. He had to appoint a king. And in a sense, you have that same task. <laughs> you know, for your life, you have to appoint a king. You have to anoint the one whom you're going to serve. We must choose who will be the king of our lives. And as we've seen in previous weeks, Saul for us is that illustration of the flesh, the picture of the flesh. David is the picture of the Lord's anointed. He is a foreshadow of Christ. And that is really the two kings that you will serve, Saul or David or, or the flesh or Christ Jesus. Who, what will have your allegiance? Will we serve the flesh? The appetites of this body, a person, an ideology, material possessions. There's lots the flesh uses to compete against Jesus. Will we serve the flesh or will we serve Christ Jesus? People look on the outside, the Lord says, but I'm looking at the heart. And so I'm thankful this morning that we get to gather, not just gather, we get to come to the Lord's table together. And this is a time just to say, Lord, I want you to have my heart. I want to come back to the cross. I want to remember that it's not about me, but it's about you and what you've done. Everything I have and everything I am, it's all from you. My life, my hope, my salvation, my future, it's from you. And we, we come to the Lord's table to get centered, so to speak, to get right back to the foundation. And so this morning, we have this opportunity to do that. And um, if you're new with us this morning or visiting, look at, I, I just always pass on some instructions as we come to the Lord's table. We're going to partake of the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus, and the bread, which represents his body on the cross. And um, uh, if you're not a part of our church or haven't been here before, uh, you're welcome to participate with us. But there's a condition on it, okay? Condition is this, that Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior. So if you're here with us this morning, visiting for the first time, and you want to come to the Lord's table, and Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, you come, you're welcome, come participate with us. If, Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, here's my request. Just respectfully refrain, okay? This is important to us. It's commanded by Jesus to remember the cross. Remember his body and blood. And so just, you know, I would encourage you respectfully refrain and we, do, we won't look down on you. We won't whatever. It's okay. Okay. We, I actually honor that. I think it's a good thing if you feel that you need to refrain. Third option is this. You don't know Jesus and you want to, you want to, you want him to change your heart, be the king of your life. Then I would invite you to come Come to the table of the Lord. Come, come, like step out in faith for, for maybe the first time for you. Step out in faith and say, Jesus, be, because you're king and I want you to be the king of my life, I, I want to recognize that what you did to save me from myself, to save me from my sin. That's what the table of the Lord is about. It's saying, Jesus, I participate. I, I'm a participant in what happened at the cross. You died for me. And I acknowledge that your, your life, your drink, your food, I need you to live. The table of the Lord is a great place to set your heart right. And so the worship team is going to come. 
and uh, gonna come on up, guys, and uh, they're gonna lead us in a bit of worship. And uh, as they do, and you feel that your heart is prepared, come and receive of the communion elements. They'll be up here at the front, and then um, we'll hang on to them. We'll partake together. And just as these guys are coming, let's let's pray this morning. Would you stand with me? Lord, uh, right now in this moment, we just invite you to look into our hearts. We just open our heart to you, Jesus. Recognize, Lord, we just recognize, oh man, we bought it. Got focused on the outside again. You're interested in the heart. So Lord, we open our hearts to you. We pray, Lord, that we invite you, Lord, to have freedom to dig. We invite you, Lord, to meet the fears of our heart, to heal them, Lord. We invite you to come into our heart, change our desires. We ask you, Lord, that you'd root sin out of our hearts. We ask God you give us, again, a new heart in Christ Jesus. Jesus, we just confess we need you. We're desperate for you, Lord. We're, we're not enough in and of ourselves. We need you. We need the life that you give and the spirit you give. And so, Lord, come search our hearts. Bring life. Bring healing. Bring wholeness. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning and the challenge that it is to us. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is enough. Be glorified in your church, we pray, Lord. Amen.